All right, so we, we've got a, um, a great study this morning. Um, I hope I do it justice. This is a, an incredibly packed passage. It's not very long, but um, man, Peter crammed so much into these verses. And we're going to unpack them and hopefully get through it, but I'm going to pray for us so we can jump in and get started right away. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to 1 Peter chapter 3, and then we'll get going as soon as I pray. Father, I just give this uh, morning to you, and I pray that you would take um, this lesson and make it come alive, Lord, for every one of us in this room, that we would understand what it is you're saying through Peter to these people and also to us. Lord, uh, don't let us get caught in high weeds. Don't let us get off in left field and dealing with things that aren't necessarily important, but Lord, may we hear what you want us to hear so that we might live the way you've called us to live. So we give you this morning, and I pray that you would uh, speak through me, and, and Lord, speak to us through your Holy Spirit. We pray all of this in Christ's name, amen. All right, so if you got your Bibles, we're in chapter 3, we're going to pick it up kind of where we left off, and this week, the title is An Ark in the Storm, and you'll see why that's true. If you did your homework, you know, Um, but this is an incredibly interesting passage, and uh, I sent you an email uh, yesterday, and I'm going to kind of restate what I said in that email. When we read the scriptures, because we live in the United States, and we live in the 21st century, and we've got 2,000 years of study, commentary, research, interpretation that we can avail ourselves of. Doesn't mean we do, but we can. We can turn, turn to commentaries. We can see what people think about every verse in the Bible. One of the things that happens because of that, that's a wonderful thing, but it also can be a detriment because we stop reading the passage for its own sake. What do I mean? Well, we come to a passage like this, and we, we read it, and we find it difficult, and so if you're prone to study, you go, man, I need to know what this means, and so you get out the commentaries, and you start researching and looking, and you Google, and, and, and that's great, and I encourage you to do that. I did it, but I want to encourage you, too, to wrestle with the passage within its context. I know I keep bringing up context, but context is huge, and, and you got to keep in mind that these, these people to whom Peter was writing didn't have a completed canon of Scripture. Most of them, because they're living in northern Asia Minor and they're predominantly Greeks, didn't have copies of the Old Testament either. They weren't familiar with the Old Testament. They didn't have... Most people alive in those days didn't have copies of the Old Testament scrolls. They, that, that would have been impossible for them to have. So these people to whom he's writing really have Peter's letter, and that's about it. They may have received letters from, from uh, Paul, um, but they're dealing with one thing, and this is all they got. So when they hear this read to them, they have to deal with it in that context. They can't go, hey, Jim, go get Grudem's commentary on First Peter down from the shelf, and let's see what he has to say. You know, let, let's see what John Piper has to say. Let's see what... No, they... they They hear it read, and by the help of the Holy Spirit, they have to take what he's saying and apply it to their lives. And so that's kind of where I want to go this this morning as we unpack this passage. Because again, it's, it's, it's going to make your head spin. There's things in it that are difficult to understand, but keep in mind, it was just as difficult for these people, and they didn't have resources. They couldn't go, well, let's check out a sermon. Let's go get on Google. Let's, let's find out what everybody thinks about this passage. They couldn't even ask Peter questions about what he was saying, which would have driven me crazy. To get this letter, have it read to you, and and then sit there and go, what do you think he meant? Well, let's call him. Well, you couldn't. So they had to deal with it at face value and apply it to their situation. So here's what we know. Here's Peter encouraging these people, right? That's what he's been doing for three chapters, attempting to encourage them in the midst of what they're going through. He's called them exiles. They're living like exiles, like they don't belong anymore, even though they're living right where they were born. 
They've been grieved by various trials. He makes that very obvious over and over again. Trials, suffering, persecution. Uh, they're being tested. Their faith is in the fire, so to speak. It's being refined. Nobody, and I mean nobody, likes to have their faith tested and refined by fire. You didn't wake up this morning praying for that, neither did I. And yet we know the value of it. They're living as aliens and strangers. It's the whole reason I came up with a title for this series. So this is what he's trying to do. He's trying to encourage these people who are living in the midst of a storm and everything that he says, including the verses we're going to look at this morning, have to do with their particular circumstance. And you have to read them and apply them based on that. So what's the storm? The storm is all the difficulties, all the trials, all the, the duress that they feel themselves under. They're living in an anti-Christian culture. It's a pagan culture. It's a Hellenistic culture. It's a Roman-influenced culture. Most of their friends and family members and co-workers do not believe in Yahweh or His Son, Jesus Christ. We know from this passage that many of them are literally slaves. It's been estimated that 35 to 40 percent of the population in the Roman Empire were slaves. So there's probably a good percentage of these people to whom Peter's writing who were literal slaves. There were women who had unbelieving husbands, and we saw several weeks ago that if you were a woman in that Hellenistic culture, you were ostracized, you were um, looked down upon, you were saw as inferior, intelligent in, in terms of intelligence and everything else, and you had to legally worship the God of your husband. And so he's writing to people like this, and every one of them are under the oppressive Roman rule. So they're in a storm, they're, they're in a difficult place, and he's trying to encourage them. And so we see in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Who are the righteous? The people to whom he's writing. Remember, he's already said, you're holy, you're set apart, you belong to the Lord, you're righteous in his eyes because of Jesus Christ, so live like it. That's, that's been the message for three chapters. But he says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Then he goes on, and his ears are open to your prayers. Now, remember what he said to men, if you're a, a Christian man and you do not honor your wife, he doesn't hear your prayers. And yet here he says, his ears are open to the prayers of who? The righteous, those who do good. But you got to keep in mind, everything we've studied to this point, everything that audience has heard read to them to this point, is, is having to be filtered through this. And I, and I have to imagine they're sitting there going, I, man, I, I, I don't understand it. I don't get it. I'm not sure how this works. I'm not really sure what Peter's saying. He says, the eyes of the Lord are watching you. He's watching you and I. He's watching them. And it reminds me of that, that word that God spoke to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, where he says, walk before me, live your life before me, before my eyes is how it literally can be translated. Live your life in front of my eyes and be blameless. Be righteous. I'm watching. I see everything that you do. It literally can be translated, conduct your life knowing that I'm watching. I remember years ago, my oldest son, when he was about 15, 16 years old, uh, he had gone to work for a, a dear friend of mine, and it was a part-time job, and, and uh, this guy gave him a job in kind of his IT area, you know, uh, technology services area, and one of the things that my son had to do was get on the computer, and he had to order supplies, and... Um, we kind of restricted computer use in our home where he didn't have access to the computer all the time. Well, here he is working for this buddy of mine, and he has free access, free reign to a computer. And one day he calls me, and he said, Dad, I, 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 need, to, I need to talk to you about something. So I went and picked him up, and on the way home he tells me that he's been accessing pornography while doing his job. 
And I said, well, first thing you're going to do is you're going to tell your boss, my friend. And he goes, Dad, I, I, don't, I don't want to do that. And I said, well, you're going to because you've violated his trust. So he did, and my friend was gracious, and he said, I take part of the blame. I should have thought about that. I should have had protections on the computers. All the men in my office probably have the same problem. But ultimately, I had to sit down with my son, and, and I said, where do we go from here? Once you've gone down this path, it's really hard to go back. And I shared with him my own struggles with pornography over the years. I got exposed to hardcore pornography at the age of three, not age of three, in the third grade. And it affected me for years. And I said, son, this is going to be a battle you're going to have for the rest of your life. And you're going to have to fight this battle, and you're going to need the Lord to fight this battle. And, and he said, Dad, I... I, I I don't know how to do it. I, 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 don't, I don't know how to stop. And I said, well, you realize that every time you get on the computer and you look at that stuff, the Lord is sitting right next to you. And his eyes kind of got big, and he goes, I never thought about that. I said, well, he's with you wherever you go. And so when you click on that link and you start looking at those pictures, Jesus Christ is sitting right beside you. And I said, if that doesn't bother you, then I want you to picture me sitting beside you. And then his eyes got really big, and he went, oh, Dad, that's gross. I said, it should be. I said, so would you want to expose me to what you're looking at? And we had this great conversation, and, and I really think that that's what this passage is talking about. That God is watching us. He's, yes, watching over us in the sense of safety and security and care, but he's also watching all that we do, and he's asking us to live out what he's made us. I've made you righteous. I've declared you holy and set apart. You belong to me. Live like it. I'm watching like a proud father. And then he says he hears. He hears our prayers. Some of us don't pray enough, but when we do manage to pray, he hears. He's listening. This makes me think of those passages in Exodus where he heard the cries of his people as they were going through difficulty. See, what's happening to these people living in northern Asia Minor is they're going through difficulty and they're crying out in their pain and their suffering and their confusion over What's going on? I didn't think this came with salvation. I thought my life was going to get better. And they're crying out, and he's listening. He's hearing. Listen to this from John chapter 9. If anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Do you know that God listens to you even when you don't cry out to him? That, that should blow every one of us in this room away, that even when you don't utter a word, even when you don't get on your knees and pray, God hears you. When you're frustrated, when you're scared, when you're angry, God hears you. And I don't mean that in a condemning way. I mean it in a compassionate way, that he is aware. He sees and he hears everything going on in your life, and he wants to be actively involved in your life. Why would Peter say this to these people? Because they needed to hear it. You think you're alone. You think you're forsaken. You think God is not there. God doesn't hear. Guess what? He sees you and he hears you. Don't give up hope. See, what happens in my life, and I know it happens in your life, as soon as I get into hot water, and as soon as I get into a difficulty, I start saying, God, where are you? Can't you see what I'm going through? Why won't you help me? Guess what? He sees me, he hears me, and he's going to help me. Maybe not in my timeline and maybe not in the way I want to be helped, but he will. And that's what Peter's trying to tell these people. But I think as they're sitting there hearing this read in their local congregation, they're saying, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, Peter. I don't think you fully understand what we're going through. Can this really be true, what you're saying? That he sees and he hears, that he cares. Well, we, we go back to Psalm 34, which we looked at last week. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
Now, I love this passage. Don't get me wrong, but I also look at this passage and go, I don't know that that's been true in my life. I don't know that he's delivered me out of every affliction. Some, I feel like he's left me in. But I'm here, right? I'm alive, I'm breathing, I'm still walking and talking, I still have life, I still have a God who loves me. He, he has delivered me, and guess what? He ultimately will deliver me out of all affliction. See, this is an eschatological, future-based letter. It's always looking at the future. He's dealing with their present, but he, he wants them to remember they've got something great coming. He really will deliver from all harm. Just give him time. Let him do his thing. Let him finish what he began. And in verse 13, we begin this really interesting and somewhat strange passage. Because he follows up verse 12 that God sees and God hears with, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now again, I can't help but read this and go, Well, I can think of a lot of people to harm me. What do you think these people thought? when they heard this read. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for doing what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. If I'm in that audience, I'm going, really? Have you seen my life lately? Have you seen what's happening to me ever since I came to Christ? Who is there to harm me? I can give you a list as long as you're armed, Peter, if you want to show up and take the time to listen. See, remember everything we've talked about, everything he's addressed in the letter thus far, they're sitting there going, I can give you a long list. There's a woman who goes, what about my unbelieving husband who abuses me verbally and who treats me like nothing more than a slave? What about my harsh and demanding master who doesn't treat me as a son of God, but treats me as nothing more than property? a little better than his cattle and his sheep? What about my relationship with the Roman government? They don't seem to care too much about me. They mistreat me. They abuse me. They overtax me. What about all my unbelieving neighbors who used to be my friends but have now rejected me because of my faith in Jesus Christ? All of these people have harmed me. And what about all the pagan religious authorities who stand opposed to my God and my Savior and my religion and my faith. See, they could come up with a very lengthy list of people who are out there to harm you. And we've got to keep that in mind as we read these passages because there, there's an audience hearing it read and they have reactions just like you and I do. But see, Peter's not done. Peter's continuing to encourage. He says, even if you, you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And, and I have to, again, believe that they're going, when and how? I'm, I'm, I'm ready. When's this blessing show up? Because right now, I don't see the blessing. I don't get the blessing. I don't feel blessed. When am I going to enjoy this blessing? Here's one of the things you and I need to understand, just like they needed to understand and he's going to elaborate on this as he moves his way through the remainder of his letter to them. The blessings of God are abundant, but they don't always look like what we want. They rarely look like what we expect. And they're also, for the most part, future-oriented. We're earthly and temporal-oriented. We want it here, we want it now, and yet what Peter has already said for three chapters and will continue for two more chapters is it's about the future. The greatest blessing we have in store is future-oriented. Look at Psalm 34 again. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. How can this be true when there are believers right now in Ukraine who are wondering if they're going to make it to next month. How can they read this passage and say, the Lord delivers, when there's a four-mile-long convoy of Russian military vehicles on their way to their capital city? 
and they can't get out. The borders are closed. How do they read this and believe it? See, it's true for them, as it was true for the people living in Northern Asia Minor, that a, the Christian life is not a guarantee of a trouble-free life. And that's the, the thing we mistake. And it, it is, we're guilty of selling that to many people to get them to accept Christ. We say, hey, if you come to Christ, if you accept Jesus as your Savior, your life's going to get great. It's going to be so much better. Your marriage is going to improve. Your, your job's going to get better. Everything's going to go wonderful. And yet, if we were honest and would testify, we'd go, but it, it didn't happen for me, but maybe it'll happen for you. Our job didn't get better. Our marriage didn't necessarily improve. Our life didn't suddenly become hunky-dory because that's not what Jesus promised. See, we've got to be really careful with this. The blessing, ultimately, is future deliverance. That's why he says you're aliens and strangers. That, that's why he's telling them you don't belong here. Your home is somewhere else. And the same thing's true of you and I. The blessing, ultimately, is in the future. But wait, I want it now. I don't want to be a slave anymore. I don't want to be married to this loser of a husband. I don't want to be in this context I want my world fixed right here, right now. And sometimes God graciously does that. God, God allows your marriage to improve. God allows you to have that better job. God restores your health. And those are wonderful, gracious things that God does, but those are not ultimately the blessing His Son came to bring. That's not where this goes. It goes to the future. Remember what He said in chapter 1. He, God, has caused us to be born again to what? A living hope, and a live hope, a hope in something future, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, reserved there, and ready to be brought here. You remember we talked about this whole idea of the, the coming kingdom that will come in the form of that new city, Jerusalem, that will descend out of heaven, that has been built by God, it will be brought to earth, and we will live there for eternity. That will be our home. That's the blessing he's talking about, ultimately. Yes, there are blessings in life. There are blessings that God brings me. I'm a very blessed man, but the greatest blessing that I have to look forward to is this one, this inheritance. See, glorification is the ultimate blessing. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm getting older. And it seems to be happening faster and faster. And, you know, I spent uh, Monday and, well, Monday and Thursday, because we had a, that ice storm, laying laminate wood floors in, our, in my home. And Friday, I couldn't get out of bed. I mean, I hurt in places I didn't know existed. My thighs hurt, my calves hurt, my back hurt, everything hurt. And I told my wife, I said, I'm, I'm getting too old for this. I can't do this anymore. See, our, our bodies are decaying, and yet I'm told that I'm going to get a new body. That's part of glorification. That's part of this wonderful blessing. But in this life, I'm guaranteed trials. Jesus guaranteed it. Jesus promised it. In this life, you will have trials and tribulations. But I get my treasure later. See, I'm not promised treasure here. Yes, there's great things in my life. I, I love the fact that I have a beautiful wife who loves me dearly. I have a, a wonderful home, and I'm able to do things like that in my home. But, but that's not the treasure that I'm to be living for. It comes later. Listen to what Jesus says. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Wait, Jesus, I look around me, and it doesn't look too overcome right now. See, he's speaking future, right? He hasn't fixed it yet. The new kingdom has not descended. Everything's not finished and complete. He hasn't done all that he's going to do, but he will. And it's as good as done. That's essentially what he's saying. I have already overcome the world. So we put our faith and our hope in that. That's why he can tell these people, hey, don't be worried. Don't be troubled. Put your faith where it belongs. Listen to what he says in verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. It's interesting how he changes 
kind of tactics. And, and he tells him, he's watching you, he hears you, he's going to bless you. And then he says, don't forget Christ. Honor him in your heart. Honor Christ. What does that even mean? Well, what, what do you, what's it mean to these people? I love how the Net, Net Bible translates it. But set Christ apart as Lord in your heart. That, that helps me tremendously because what he's telling me and what he's telling you is that I have to make a conscious decision every day to set apart, sanctify, make holy Christ in my heart. Not intellectually, but emotionally and behaviorally. The way I live my life, that he is the Lord. He is my master. Now keep in mind, he's already addressed women who are married to unbelieving husbands who treat them like they're nothing less nothing more than slaves. And he said, submit to them. But who's your ultimate master? Jesus. He's your Lord. He's talked to slaves. And that's why this message is so pertinent to their context. The New Living Translation puts it this way, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. Just stop and think about for just a second what that might look like for you and me. To treat him as Lord, and the word literally means supreme in authority in your life, over everything. That means before you make a decision, you consult him, you talk to him, and you ask for his wisdom and his blessing. You don't just go willy-nilly and do whatever you want, but you treat him as what he is. He's the master. He's the controller. He is supreme over your life. He's not just your savior but he's king. See, I love Jesus the Savior. I'm not as big a fan of Jesus the King because if he's king, I'm not. I like being king. I like being the one who makes all the decisions for my life. I don't want to consult him. And yet I need to, and I should, because if he's truly my Lord, then I treat him as such. That's what he's telling these people. Don't just rely on him for your salvation, but rely on him for direction, for wisdom, for leadership in your life, every day of your life. He's your master, and he's a different kind of master than the slave had or that believing wife had. See, Peter has talked a whole lot about submission, and so have we over the last few weeks. And the reason is because these people were already having to submit to so many different people, their masters, their husbands, the Roman government, the pagan authorities. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake. He's talked to literal slaves, people who have no choice over anything. And he says, submit to your masters. But it's interesting that he uses a different word there, a different word for master. And it, it's from where we get our word despot. Somebody who rules over someone else maliciously, a master or a lord, an absolute ruler. What's interesting is that these two words are both used of God and Jesus in Scripture. It's not necessarily a negative word, this despotes. It's, it, it can mean both positive and negative. They're both used of Jesus and of the Father, but he... He differentiates in this letter because I think he's trying to get him to say that, you know, in your life, your master, your physical master, your slave master may be your despot, but Jesus is your Lord, your curios. He, he's, he should be the one you recognize because he's trying to point out to these people that Jesus Christ is your ultimate master. And guess what? He's got the same message for you and I. But if he's not master in your heart, it doesn't make any difference. If you're not going to treat Jesus as master of your heart, then he's really not your master. And why is that so important? Because this idea that the heart is kind of the inner seat of our emotions, of our lives. It's where everything emanates from. We're driven by our heart, by by our emotions, by the way we think and the way we process. And so if he's not Lord over that region, 
then guess what? Everything that comes out of here, this, this brain of mine, starts here. It, it starts in here. My anger, when I get angry, it's coming from someplace in here. That's why if you ever counsel someone who's going through difficulty, you're counseling a child or a, 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 a mate, the, the thing you've got to get to is the heart. If you ask them, why are you so angry? They're going to say, well, because he did X or she did this or this happened to me. But ultimately, you've got to go, okay, that's a trigger. That, that, that's a mechanism, but something's going on in here. Why did that make you that angry? Because it all begins in the heart. And I think for many of us in the room, he's not really Lord of our heart. I love what Jesus said to the Pharisees. And he said a lot to the Pharisees. But in this particular occasion, he says, why do you, Pharisees, by your traditions, your man-made rules, violate the direct commandments of God? You cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. In other words, you've made what God has said less valuable than what you have said. Your will, your rules trump God's rules. Then he goes on and he says, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Notice what he says. Their, their hearts are far from me. They give me lip service, but they don't treat me as Lord of their hearts. And guess what? Guys, we are so guilty of that. I am. I love to give the Lord lip service. I just don't want to give him rule and reign in my heart. And that's why he tells these people, it's got to begin where? In the heart. I know you don't like your circumstances. I, I know you'd love to see everything fixed and everything change. But guess what? This is God's will for you right now. And you need to submit to him as master over you and trust him that he knows what he's doing. He's watching. He knows exactly what you're going through. He's not shocked. He's not surprised that you came to be a believer and you got an unbelieving husband, that you're a slave who came to Christ and you've got an unbelieving master. He knows it. He's not stupid. He's not blind. He didn't fall asleep. He's not somewhere else. He hears you. He knows you're suffering. He hears your cries. But you got to submit. you got to treat him as who he is, Lord. This is what I wrote in, in the devotionary I wrote on 1 Peter this last summer. Rather than obsessing over what men might do to them, they need to start, needed to start praising Jesus for all that he had done for them. They were sons and daughters of God. They were heirs of the kingdom. They were forgiven, redeemed, reconciled, and had the Holy Spirit of God living in them. They had much for which to be grateful and plenty of cause to worship Jesus. That's really what he's saying. Make him Lord of your heart. Step back, take a look at your life, and realize all that he has done for you and quit demanding that he do more for you. It's not that God doesn't want to do more for you, that Christ doesn't want to do more for you, but it's, it's that we've forgotten all that he has done, that he's redeemed me, reconciled me, he's saved me, set me apart. He died in my behalf. He's made me righteous, and he's guaranteed me an inheritance that I could never have paid for. Part of what it means to honor him as Lord is to recognize all that he's already done for you and be grateful for it. Well, then he goes on and says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. This is one of the favorite verses we use to talk about evangelism, apologetics. As a matter of fact, the whole idea of making a defense is apologia in the Greek, and it's where we get our word for apologetics, the, the idea of defending your faith. But I think what we have to do is, again, what's the context here? Why is he telling them to be prepared to make a defense, to be ready to defend your faith? He's talking about what's in them. Again, it's about the heart, right? He's Lord. He's master of my heart. The hope is in you. The hope is Jesus Christ in you. That's what you're defending. You're not defending doctrine. You're defending the fact that Jesus Christ has literally invaded my life and radically transformed me. See, we, when we use the word apologetics, we want to deal with, you know, um, was there a seven-day creation? 
or was it longer? Did it involve, you know, evolution or was it a miracle? You know, what, we want to defend certain aspects of doctrine, but I think what he's saying is you need to be able to defend that you truly have been transformed. How do you do that? Through words? Sure. But more powerfully through actions. That's why he, over and over again he says, do good, do good, do good, do good, do, do what is righteous, live out your faith. That is the greatest testimony you're ever going to have. Because your words, if they don't match your lifestyle, your words are worthless. See, if the Lord is in your heart, you should have hope, right? That is the hope. I have Jesus Christ residing in me, and that hope should become visible for all to see. Your master, your unbelieving husband, your neighbor who hates your guts, your boss who's threatening to fire you if you don't renounce Christ, whatever's going on in their lives, they should see Christ, and you should be ready to explain to them what he means to you. That's what this verse is talking about. Be ready to explain Christ. So when someone comes to you and says, how can you love him, Jesus, or love your husband after what he's done to you? Remember, keep the context. Why do you always look so peaceful? You're a slave. You've got an evil master. Well, it's because of what Jesus Christ has done in my life. How do you manage to stay so positive in the midst of all this when you've just lost your job because of your faith in Christ? Because I know how the story ends. I know what he's going to ultimately do for me. Why are you so quick to forgive? Because Jesus Christ has forgiven me. See, this is what he's talking about, and this is powerful. This is why he's writing this to these people, and by extension to you and I, because we're in similar situations today. We live in a world that hates us. We live in a non-Christian culture, and we're up against it, guys. But he sees and he hears, he's listening, he watches, and he's saying, be ready to defend that hope, that presence of Christ within you. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. See, he basically says, you're going to get slandered. When people ask those questions, you're going to get slandered for it. It's part and parcel. It comes with the territory. But it's okay. Keep sharing. Keep telling them. And they're going to revile you. Your good behavior, your righteousness, your righteous deeds. They're going to reject your words, but keep defending the hope that is in you. And again, the greatest defense is to live it out. The greatest defense is an offense. I don't know if that's the way that phrase goes, but it's applicable for this. If you want to go on the offensive, live out your faith. Expose your hope to those around you. For it's better, what, to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Once again, I think these people are shaking their heads going, man, I don't, I, that sounds great. That'd look great in a coffee mug. I just don't know if it's true. But it is. We know it's true. We know it's biblical. We know it's solid. But we wrestle with, I, I just don't know. But he goes on, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Now, this is where it's going to get really tricky. It's going to get really squirrely. Your brain's going to, if it's not already tuned out, it's, it's going to probably get close to doing it right here. But track with me for just a second. Listen to what he says. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So he's encouraging them about, hey, look at Christ. Look what he did for you. Use him as an example. In which he went, speaking about in the spirit, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And this is where your head should start to hurt. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the, in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subject subjected to him. 
Now, I just read 18 through 22, and even as I read it, it makes my head hurt. Imagine what these people were like as they're hearing this read. Now, they've heard the whole letter read in one fell swoop with no commentary. Just imagine that. If I stood up here right now and read chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through the last verse of the fifth chapter in one fell swoop, your heads would be spinning. You would have so many questions. Well, guess what? We've just read a few verses, and these people are going, what in the world is he talking about? What does this mean? There's a lot in these verses, guys, and I'm not going to attempt to unpack it all because I don't think most of what we get hung up on, they got hung up on. Mitchell and I were talking this morning. There are so many commentaries that have been written about just these verses. As a matter of fact, Wayne Grudem has a commentary where he deals with it in the midst of his commentary when he's dealing with 18 through 22, and then he has an entire appendix on just these verses because he couldn't complete it when he wrote the commentary, so he added a whole appendix, and I still haven't finished reading it. These verses are complex, but when these people heard them read, they had no commentaries to go to, they had no explanation. Notice he doesn't give any explanation about what he's talking about. So they had to take it at face value and deal with it. So what did they hear? Yes, it's perplexing. Yes, it's difficult. But I think it's far more simple than we make it. Peter is talking in what appear to be riddles, right? What does he say? The righteous for the unrighteous, put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Then he starts talking about Noah. Why in the world has he brought up Noah? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now, I think these people had probably heard about the story of Noah and the flood. As a matter of fact, almost every people group on earth has a flood story. So I think they were probably familiar with Noah and the flood, but Peter doesn't explain any of this, right? He, he doesn't go into any commentary. He doesn't refer to, see my appendix. Even in his second letter, he doesn't deal with any of this. So these people just have to take what they hear and figure out what does this have to do with our lives. And I think this is the key, the ark. You all know what the ark was, right? Massive boat built by Noah. And it's the key to understanding why these verses are included. And it all goes back to Genesis 6 through 8. That's the story of Noah and the ark. It's a story of what? Divine judgment against the sins of man. But it's also a story of what? Redemption. What's Peter been talking about? Redemption, the salvation, the inheritance. This story in Genesis 6 through 8 is all about the coming of Christ. It's a foreshadowing of the coming of Christ. And he's using it to encourage these people. He's still encouraging, right? We read these verses and they make our head hurt, but they're meant to encourage. Well, just briefly, what's the story in Genesis? Look at this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's how bad things had gotten. And the Lord regretted that he had made man in the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. He's going to wipe out his creation. Everything that he says is good, he's going to wipe out. But then it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I've always found that fascinating because I've read the story of Noah. Noah's called righteous. According to chapter 6, verse 9 of Genesis, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. That's the same word used of Abraham in Genesis 17, 1. Walk before me and be blameless. Noah lived his life in front of God in a blameless way. Not sinless, but faithful. That's the key. He was faithful. You got to remember this. He's an alien and a stranger. Noah doesn't fit in. Everybody around him is sinful. What did it say? They're wicked beyond belief. Everything they do, even the thoughts of their brains, are wicked all the time. And this is the only guy that stands out. Does that have anything to do with these people living in Northern Asia Minor? You think you're alone? 
It was Noah against the world. And yet, we know from the second letter that Peter wrote that he's referred to as a herald of righteousness. Look at this. He, God, did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. What does that even mean? How was he a herald of righteousness? Because he believed the word of God. How did he do that? He built an ark. God said, build an ark. Had he ever seen an ark? No. Did he know what it was for? Not really. God just said, I'm going to destroy the earth and I'm going to save you. But in order to do it, you're going to have to build this ark. And he did it. He believed the word. And he proved that he believed by building the ark. What has Peter been saying to these people over and over again? Do good. Live out your righteousness so others can see it. Defend the hope that is within you by your behavior. That's exactly what Noah did. He demonstrated through his obedience the righteousness of God. I believe God is going to save me. And I'm building this ark to prove it. What's he telling these people living in Northern Asia Minor? Through your behavior, you prove that you believe the promises of God. That he does bless the righteous. That he does redeem the righteous. That he will complete everything that he plans to do. See, God didn't spare the ancient world, right? We know the story. We know the flood came. We know that most of the people died. He brought that flood upon who? The ungodly, the unrighteous, those who rejected that word. But he preserved Noah. See, he wants, Peter wants these people to know God is going to preserve you. How did he do it? God provided Noah with a vessel, a vessel of salvation. Now track with me here. This is so important. This is what he's trying to get these people to understand. Noah had to get in that boat in order to be saved, right? It wasn't enough to build it. It wasn't enough to just believe in it. He had to enter into it. He had to complete the task that he was given. And when he did it, he was saved. He, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. It was a vessel of salvation. And it says that he was brought safely through the waters. Now, this is where I think Peter's whole point has gone with the story. What are these people going through? Rough waters, difficult times, persecution. They, they feel like they're dying because of all that's happening to them. But here's what we got to understand. The water that flooded the earth and destroyed all life was the same water that floated the ark and spared the lives of Noah and his family. I guarantee no one in this room has ever thought about that because I had never thought about it until this moment when I wrote this. Noah was saved by judgment. What does the water represent? Judgment. And yet the water is what floated the boat. So in a sense, the judgment saved Noah. How are, how are you and I saved? The judgment placed upon Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are saved, but he had to be judged. He had to suffer. He had to die. See, the water here is a picture of judgment and also salvation, redemption. The water brought both death and life. Death to those who failed to get in the boat, failed to believe, and life to those who did. A form of judgment to some, a form of salvation to others. He's telling these people, guys, take Noah's life, take the ark, understand that that's a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for you. You will be saved. Just stay in the ark. The floodwaters will recede one day. The trials, the tribulations will pass one day, but you will be saved. The flood surrounded them but did not destroy them, Noah and his family. Those who place their faith in Christ will survive the floodwaters of life. Our guarantee of eternal life is secure in Christ who has gone, gone on to heaven and is seated in the place of honor next to God. And it is from heaven he will one day return for his bride, the church. So I know you still got questions, and I know you still have issues about, yeah, but what about preaching to the people in prison? I purposely skipped over those verses because it's not that I don't have an opinion. 
but I'm going to let you read that opinion and it's part of the devotionary I've already given you. And I've also given you an, a, a sermon preached by John Piper that will go into greater detail because I think that's one of the areas that we get into the high weeds over and we miss the whole point. See, the point here is what has he already done for you and do you believe what he's already done for you and do you believe the fact that you're saved and that he will redeem you, that he sees you and he hears you? That's what's important. And that's what should encourage us just like it was meant to encourage them. So discuss the parallels between Noah and the ark and Jesus' provision of salvation for us. How was this supposed to encourage those original readers of his letter? And how should it encourage us? Secondly, why should the blessing of our future inheritance be enough motivation to suffer for our faith in this life? And what ways do we reveal it's not enough? In other words, we do worry. We do get upset. We do get frustrated. And it's because we're not thinking about that blessed hope. Finally, look closely at verse 22 and discuss why this should be an encouragement to us in this life. Well, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this incredible passage. And I know I haven't been able to unpack it all, but I pray that as the men talk around the tables that they would focus on the essentials of the fact that you were that vehicle, that vessel of salvation, your son, Jesus Christ. And in, when we place our life in him, we're brought through the floodwaters. We're brought through the difficulties of life and we are delivered on dry land. And that day is yet to come. Help us live with that reality in mind and not give up. And may we, through our lives, give a defense for the hope that is in us to everyone that we meet. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.